Hey everybody, welcome to the Asian Americans and hope you are doing well here at the end of July and hope, number one, hope that you are staying safe and healthy. Number two, uh, that you're vaccinated and if you haven't, that you are making plans to do so uh, as the Delta variant and other potential variants are continuing to affect us here in the States uh, through COVID and then with so many other places around the world, I genuinely hope that you are uh, prioritizing not only your health, but the health of your friends, your neighbors, your family, and thinking about our uh, people in their healthcare system and uh, people who are making sure that we can get back uh, to life as, as we once maybe knew it, uh, but in a different way. Uh, today's episode, today's interview is is really, really uh, on, you know, on, on uh, the same topic as, as that. Uh, we are really excited to be working with the Department of Health and Human Services as a part of the We Can Do This campaign for this very, very special and unique and exclusive interview with Dr. Adelai Rosario, who is a lieutenant within the U.S. Health and Human Services uh, Department at the U.S. government. And we get to talk to her uh, not only about why this, much, that, why this work is so important for her, but we get to learn about her unique background as part Chamorro, uh, part Cuban, uh, growing up in Guam, in Miami, uh, learning a little bit more about her own community, her people, her culture, uh, while she was attaining graduate uh, education back in Guam and what eventually led her uh, to pursue this public service work of making sure that there can be uh, health equity and health care access. And so again, uh, we encourage you uh, to get your vaccines, to learn about the vaccines. I hope you learn a little bit more today. And I encourage you, if you think that there is someone in your life that can learn a little bit more about um, the vaccines, or just uh, healthcare in general. Through my interview with Dr. Rosario today, I encourage you and I ask you to share this episode out. Uh, special thanks to Henry Han, uh, to Bryce Ikamura, uh, to everybody else who made this interview possible, uh, to Whitney and to Karina. Uh, thank you so much for making this interview possible. Could not really do it without you. And without further ado, here now is my conversation with Dr. Rosario. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Hope you're doing well. Um, and, and we genuinely mean that here. We've been through a lot in the last year plus as we have collectively dealt, uh, obviously, with the pandemic, the impact that it has had on our lives, our families' lives, our friends' lives, uh, our businesses, our workplaces, our governments, not just here in the States, but our, our family and our friends globally particularly within our AAPI community. We've obviously had to deal with a little bit more than that. But here we are in the summer. You should be hearing this in, in August here in 2021. And there's a lot that we're still trying to comprehend and process. And perhaps we'd like to think, move on from, but we're going to come out of this different as people, as a community. And so today we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking to a key figure uh, within our community, especially within the, the medical field. We're going to talk about vaccines. We're going to talk about the impact on our community. Uh, really, really honored to spend a little bit of time today talking to Dr. Adelaia Rosario, who is a lieutenant in the U.S. Public Health Service and is an executive in the Office of the Surgeon General. Really, really excited because I think uh, we often talk about here on this show looking for people who look and sound like us, whose backgrounds, whose culture, whose identity mirrors a little bit of what we represent and so much of what we really didn't see growing up. 
And so excited to share all that. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Rosario, welcome to the Asian Americans. Thank you so much for having me. This is huge. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And, and before we get started, we, we want to uh, thank uh, this took a lot of effort, a coordination of effort between so many different teams behind the scenes. And, and so to thank you to everybody, Mariana, to Whitney, to Bryce and to everybody involved behind the scenes. Thank you for your efforts and, and uh, making sure that we can get this story amplified. We're going to get to talking about the vaccine. We're going to get to talking about, you know, we can do this and uh, some of the wonderful things that we continue to do to make sure that there is proper and factual and science-based information regarding the vaccine and some of the numbers that so many of us may not be familiar with in, in terms of our community specific numbers in the vaccine. But let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your background and sort of how you identify as an Asian American Pacific Islander and how that identity came to be and then how it shaped your early perspective on identity. Sure. Uh, so my father is a Cuban American, well, born in Cuba, was in the U.S. Air Force after he immigrated to the U.S. with his family. And while he was serving, ended up on Guam, which was already one of the U.S. territories. So he met my mother, who is um, a local indigenous Chamorro woman, <clears throat> and they married, had me. So I was born on Guam in the Naval Hospital in Aganya Heights. And he finished his term. He didn't do career in the service, but finished his term then back on the continental U.S. And when that all wrapped up, he returned with his family to South Florida, specifically Miami, Florida, where um, his you know, nuclear family had kind of settled down after immigrating from Cuba in the early 1960s. So myself growing up in Miami, Florida, I was very much a prototype of much of my generation that lived in Miami. You know, we all had the same kind of household composition. We had the grandparents that didn't necessarily speak English. We had the parents, like two parent uh, households working. And then the grandparents also of kind of full-time participating in the rearing and the caretaking of uh, the kids in my generation. So Growing up in Miami, what I was able to really adopt and what was really indoctrinated in me was that Cuban-American identity. And it was reinforced, obviously, by uh, my environment since everything was um, just I was in sync with that whole environment and the culture there. What's interesting, though, is that I know this is a podcast, but if anybody would see me, my features clearly indicate that I have, quote unquote, something from over there. So I would have a number of, you know, family and friends or then anybody that I would meet, you know, through extended family or friends that would look at me, look at my mom, and they would write my mother off as Filipino, which she kind of just wasn't cool with because she wasn't Filipino. And then they'd look at me and put their finger in my face and ask me in Spanish, like, do you have something from over there? And, and I would be, and I'd have to go through the whole spiel of, yes, my dad was in Guam and were from Guam. So I have, you know, the features very clearly, um, but I had a very kind of um, altogether Cuban American identity growing up. Uh, but because of that constant reminder that I look different, that's how by the time I got to like my, you know, my young adult years, I had this very strong draw to all things Asian, Asian American, all things Hawaiian, because that's really as mainstream as you can get when it comes to Pacific Islander uh, culture. So while I was wrapping up my undergrad degree 
um, in Miami in psychology. I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this? I don't know what I want to do with this, but I do know that I want to definitely explore this mythological land called Guam. And what was funny is that up until this point, my brothers um, and I would kind of joke about it that, oh yeah, one day we're going to go to Guam University. Um, lo and behold, there is a university on Guam <laughs> known as the University of Guam. And so, you know, just from one thing to the other, I actually have um, a minor in religious studies and a big bulk of that came through Asian American studies, like the center that they had at, at FIU, my university. And it, I was really drawn to those classes. And what I came to understand was because of its innate link to my background and culture. So I wasn't, I didn't get there quick enough, I think directly, but when I really reflected on it, I was like, okay, so this is definitely something I'm drawn to. I was going to sign up for one of their study abroads. And then while I was doing the study abroad, I was like, well, since I'm on that side of the globe, literally the other side of the globe, I might as well just, you know, hop over and check out Guam. Ended up, the, the, the momentum that that trajectory took ended up eliminating the study abroad in Asia and just took me to Guam. So that's when I kind of fell in sync with what was really authentically um, going on with me and what I was being drawn to. So as I was wrapping up that psych degree and, you know, all, all that undergrad, all this uh, work is when I made a decision to go visit Guam. And then I thought to myself, well, while I'm over there, let me just talk to somebody at this, you know, University of Guam that we used to joke about and just ask questions, just ask questions about the history, ask, you know, I just, I knew nothing. And something else that actually stimulated the interest was that my mom turned 50 around the same year. And we threw her a, you know, Polynesian themed party because that's all you can find online, right? It's like distinctly Hawaiian and Polynesian. And then I started doing some research online and finding some Chamorro things and, you know, Chamorro facts. And so we put that kind of around the party and, you know, I had everybody make sure they came theme dressed and that it was just definitely some kind of a current and a momentum that had that was starting to build that year and pretty much took over. So, you know, here we are with me planning to go. I want to talk to somebody so I could just find out a little bit more. And I stumble upon this master's in Micronesian studies program. And I'm like, oh, my God, this all these classes answer everything that I would be wanting to know that I just don't know anything about. So lo and behold, I'll never forget. This was like, I think Christmas of I think 2003. And I walked out in my Santa Claus, you know, PJs and announced to my family that I was moving to Guam to pursue this degree. And my dad just kind of looked at me and he's like, what, what are you doing? Everybody's trying to get out and you're running back in. And I, you know, and I was just like, I, something I want to do. So that last year of my undergrad studies, I was very focused. I kind of knew what was going on and, or at least what I needed to gather, what I needed to learn, what I needed to kind of prep myself for the foundation before I head off across the world to encounter just, you know, my family. So I, there was a lot of, you know, people asking me, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Like, what is that degree going to be worth? You're going to end up with student loans. You know, if you just want to meet your family, just go on vacation. So I had to kind of dig deep and be like, why do I really want to do this? You know, but it really, really called to me. It really spoke to me. Obviously, it was very ancestral, you know, like what was being what was happening there. It was like this huge ancestral calling. And I, you know, packed up and moved to Guam and ended up starting my, my master's um, in Micronesian studies there in January of 2005, I believe. 
Tell us about that. Um, I mean, b- before we do, and, and I know you used the word before, and it was a, it was a term to, to my own evolution in, in knowledge and education about our, our Pacific Islander uh, community, brothers and sisters. Tell us about the Chamorro people and where do they call home and what did you learn? You know, your, your father joked if you want to meet your family and learn about your, your mom's side of, of uh, family, you could have just gone and met them, but you actually, you know, spent years there learning formally and informally. Tell us about who are the Chamorro people, what makes them awesome, and, and what did you learn about them that you probably could not have learned just by visiting or reading from a book? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The immersion was everything. And it was good that I was stripped from my kind of environmental background and thrust into something altogether different and new. So, um, you know, as an island, as a community, as a culture, it's very different than um, than the Cuban-American culture that I was uh, kind of indoctrinated into. But they are, you know, the Chamorro people are the, the indigenous people of the, nor- the Northern Mariana Islands, all of which are territories. So we have Guam as, as one territory and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, which make up, uh, which Saipan, Rota, and Tinian comprise. And, you know, we were a Spaniard investment for 500 years while they were investing in New Spain, which was Mexico and the Philippines. So Guam was a galleon stopover. So we had Spanish influence in that whole region for 500 plus years. Um, and then it wasn't until the Spanish-American War in 1898 that the Americans then planted the flag there and it became, it was under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Navy. And then, of course, World War II rolls, rolls through in that region and the Japanese um had occupation of Guam and that region for a a few years. And then the Americans kind of won it back um, in tandem with the Pearl Harbor date. So, you know, there is a a history of colonization and you kind of witness it in the collective mentality and the collective identity. Um, But they're very proud. They're very proud people and they're very humble and they're by far the most hospitable, you know, that I've ever come across in my life. It was wonderful to be there. It was, I, you know, there was a very moving moment that one of my uncles, when I finally arrived and, you know, it's kind of one of those moments that they start calling everybody, you know, when they come out of the woodworks to come welcome you and see you. And my uncle was like, Oh, welcome home. And these are people that I didn't remember their faces because, you know, the last time I had gone for a visit, I was 13 years old. So there was just so much warmth, so much, you know, inclusion, um, which is really how the only way I was really able to kind of gauge and understand that culture, because I was a little departed from like those values based on how I was raised. Um, but it was while I was there, I was there for three years. Um, and it was remarkable. I mean, I didn't want to leave. It, it's definitely one of those. It, it was it was another kind of fork in the road that prompted the next phase. Right. That informed it. But while I was there. My program was wonderful. I learned so much. It's, you know, all the sociopolitical implications of, of this space and the, and the small space in the ocean. And, you know, the culture, it was just wonderful. And so what happened to me personally was I had to deconstruct my identity because whatever I thought it meant to be Pacific Islander was absolutely not it when I got there. So I had to just kind of take myself apart and absorb and just let my, you know, being there impact me, however it needed to impact me. And I kind of put myself back together again, you know, at that point, really, really embodying and identifying as Pacific Islander. So I'm, you know, I'm 50, 50, I'm 50, you know, percent Cuban, 50% tomorrow, but I feel that I'm a hundred percent of both. 
because at any given time, I am perfectly in sync with either. And while I was pursuing my, 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 the master's in Micronesian studies, my particular focus, the thesis, was public health. And that came up by accident. Like One thing I could tell you about my path from start to where we are today was that this is very rarely premeditated. I was not one of those people in school ever that was that had this perfect delineated path with all these you know perfect steps laid out before me. So I've very much just been open um, and I've just let it dictate itself to me. And so while I was over there, I knew that this was just my goal. I you know this is this is what I was doing now. This is what I got to get through. And while I was there, two of my aunts that were very dear to me um, were diagnosed with late stage cancers. And I just didn't understand that. Both of them had um, insurance, so it wasn't an access issue. And it's just, it was a very, very curious circumstance for me. And so I focused, or that's rather what inspired my thesis. Um, so my thesis looked at uh, a Chamorro cultural value called Mamalao, which is kind of like this sense of shame and modesty that, and how that impacted, if it did impact um, Chamorro women's pursuit of gynecological screening and cancer prevention screening, which is, the, you know, your good old pap smear. And so there was just, it was, I mean, unbelievably insightful um, and enlightening. And it was just a, qual- a small qualitative study just to get through my thesis. But that is where I think what, what kind of just laid it a strong foundation for ultimately where I ended up in this space firmly of public mm. health and very culture focused. And so with that, um, I just remember being there and it's just such, such a strained system. Like their resources are so limited for all the ways that we can complain about all the government entities here, all the hospital entities here and all the ways that everything could be better and better resourced. I mean, this is something altogether like on a different zip code. It was just really, really strained. And so I just remember thinking to myself, God, I really want to get to a place in life where I could help. Where, where mm. when I help, I'm helping like the whole island. I don't know. I mean, that was like as far fetched of a of like a goal <laughs> that I could have ever created for myself. And, and and it was one of those things that like I'm not even gonna think about how that could ever come to pass because that's just so far beyond my sphere of understanding. Um, but I, that was where my heart was, and that's where I guess the intention that I put out into the universe, because this was already me being in a master's program. And then my brothers, obviously, following suit and, and pursuing their own, was the furthest um, that my generation had gone so far. I only had one other person in the family being uh, growing up in Miami who had pursued a terminal degree. So role mm. models were very few and examples of career options were very few. So this was already like I was pushing the limits already here. And I was very fortunate that my family was very supportive because, you know, my grandfather was still alive and he's like old school Cuban, which was, you know, kind of different gender roles and household compositions and roles that that were applicable to him in his life. And he was one of my biggest cheerleaders. And that was really amazing to see him adapt in that way um, and just be sure that my generation, me and my brothers were getting what we needed to like make it and do well in our lifetime, which was different than his circumstance. So once I was, you know, working that thesis and I ended up, you know, I, I hit three years in Guam. I was like, okay, so now I got to kind of figure out what else I'm going to do. And then I, I just kind of came to the, to my, the, the reality for me was that I, I had this desire to push. I didn't know exactly where to push to or what to push towards. 
But I felt that the circumstance on that island, which is only 30 miles long, was a little limiting for myself professionally. So I just returned. I was like, let me just go back to home base. I'll wrap up. I'll just make sure I finish this thesis because that's like imperative. Um, and I, of course, struggled. Like it took me about a year, you know, to kind of get my head back in the game and just finish the writing because that write up is always like the most challenging. And so when, so when I was back in Florida, finishing up um, this degree, technically, totally changed as a person at this point, right? Like, like my growth was the most probably I had ever evolved as a human being in those three short years. But this is when, you know, just, I didn't, it, it was just interesting. I didn't pursue anything. It just kind of found its way to me, which was connecting with old networks um, from folks that I had worked with prior to leaving a Guam. And then one thing led to the other. And I found my way back to, to FIU, which is the university I had received my undergrad from and worked on a research team there just as staff. And then, you know, they invited me to apply for their, this PhD in social welfare because they, you know, the, the senior faculty that they had there kind of saw me wrap up this task of this thesis from 9,000 miles away from, from where I, I did these studies. And it, that, that's a challenge because once you're removed from the environment, the motivation kind of gets a little sketchy. So here I am now sitting in a, you know, starting off a PhD program. And it's something I never was kind of emotionally or psychologically prepared for because I just, I, I didn't, I, there weren't any thrusters trying, to, you know, gaining momentum to like pursue this. And it was, you know, like anybody who's been through a PhD program, it's just a nightmare. But in this space is where I discovered that what my interests were had a name and that there was a very specific space in science and research for it. And, um, and in the world of biomedicine and bio, biomedical research, which is just focus on minority health and health disparities and eliminating the health disparities in an effort to create health equity for all communities and all populations. So that was kind of what I was embedded in. That's what I was doing already. And then I was, that was definitely being cultivated when I was in the doctoral program and my dissertation at that point, um, you know, focused then on the community that I was in, which was South Florida, Miami. So we're focused back on Latin folks and again, it had to do with, uh, you know, a cultural tradition, an indigenous healing tradition and how that um, provided psychosocial support for Latinas who had cancer. So, the, you know, the main the main space that I occupy in science is that intersection between health and culture. You know, and then if you want to expand beyond that, it's, you know, it's health behaviors, health beliefs, health outcomes. And um, not only culture, but then the spirituality and religiosity part of culture um, and the kind of the healing traditions that exist within cultures and how that collides or not with um, Western medicine. So, you know, at least I kind of I knew what I was about, you know, so then I had at that point I had some, you know, social work in my background. I had now this degree and it, it had they had a really great training component, like they prepared us very well, that program that that I went through. And I learned at that point where money comes from for mm. research. And it was the government, you know, the biggest funder of biomedical research is, um, you know, the National Institutes of Health, along with a couple of other, you know, government agencies that support this kind of science. And so 
you know, when, when my PhD time was wrapping up, I'm trying to look for a postdoc. I'm just kind of going through the normal motions, right, that like folks coming out of a, a program like that do. Um, I, I wasn't sold on being an academic. Like, that's what they groom you for. And I was like, I don't know about that because I want to be on the ground with the community, right? Like, that's what I, that's all the parts of that I've loved about all the different things that I had done at that point. And it's great to be at that more macro level and start, you know, doing work that when you have an outcome impacts like swaths of communities at a time. But I still didn't, I was very weary of losing touch with the community. Like just my, you know, my, the communities that my family came from, right? Like those are the ones that mattered to me. So, you know, my research is focused on Latino health and Pacific Islander health um, or AAPI since we all clustered together. And I ended up pursuing a postdoc at the National Cancer Institute and thought to myself, hey, they also got jobs. So maybe I don't necessarily just have to go for a postdoc. And I pursued an open, a very, very rare open position at the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. And lo and behold, I got the job and not the postdoc, which is just a very rare occurrence. And so, you know, please think for, just recognize for a second that all of this was really scary. Like this was very overwhelming for me. Um, this is just not the rhyme and reason that I'm used to. This is not my norm. I was not surrounded by people that this was their norm, that I had been kind of like acculturated towards this. So this was very foreign. But you, um, you, you talked about that, right? The lack of role models, you being one of the first on both sides of your family, blazing your own trail. And in, in hindsight, as we tell the story now, Dr. Rosario, there's degree after degree enlightenment moment, right? Like, you knew from having these experiences what you wanted to do, but how did you find support during that time? And what is the message to younger girls who are now coming after you, who look like you, right? Who are of, of Chamorro descent, who are of Cuban descent, who look up to you to now say, hey, she did it, so maybe I can do it too. Like, how, how did you find support? Were there other people, either people who look like you or otherwise that sort of pulled you aside and gave you the secret code or opened doors for you? Well, there was a lot of relatability with other folks in the PhD program, at least from kind of like the shared Latin culture. There was a, there was a few of us there, but no, in regards to like um, support coming from the PI side, that was non-existent because my own family in Guam, when I was graduating with my master's, had no idea what the heck I was graduating with. They just knew that I went to college and I kept going to college and there was more college. So there wasn't, there wasn't even a clear understanding on graduate degree, you know, like an undergrad degree versus a graduate degree versus a terminal degree. Like there was just no concept. So what got me through was I just had, you know, by the grace of God, one of my biggest blessings is that I have a phenomenally supportive family. So, you know, a lot of folks in our specific community, API communities have a challenge with this because a lot of, you know, our older generations have very clear and rigid expectations for the generations coming up. And they will impose that. And it and it's a huge thing. It's, you know, it's pride, it's honor, you know, and these are driving cultural values, underpinnings of cultural values. So I could see how that can make any path rocky and difficult. So my advice for someone in that scenario who, who is not going to go ahead and drink that Kool-Aid is you need to surround yourself with supportive people. You need to you need to find and surround yourself with your cheerleaders because it gets tough, you know. So it, the the program itself is tough, and then be, launching a career in it is going to be tough. And so, 
One example of that is as I came out of the program, you know, once again, I'm in a community that I'm a prototype, right? Yeah, I look a little different, but I'm, I walk among them, you know, it's, it's, we're all one and the same. When I finally, you know, pack up and make it up to the, the DC area and find myself in the federal workforce at an institute dedicated to minority health and health disparities, it got very monochromatic very quickly, you know, getting to that level. And I think that's when I got, it was like a kick in the stomach. You know, I was following this because it was important to me because I was doing this because people mattered to me, you know, and I had my Cuban grandparents who were immigrants who sacrificed everything so that we could be free so that we could have opportunities. And I was not going to squander any opportunity that came my way. So I had those personal reasons for just pursuing what I did and pushing. But then when I got to the federal workspace, I was like, oh, this is way bigger than me, way bigger than me. So then that completely took on a life of its own. And I just let, you know, leaned into becoming a champion for like all things diversity related, you know, all things like diversifying the workforce at the federal level, all things diversifying the biomedical workforce. And, and so then, so that started happening there. So I'm there doing my little science job, you know, like mm. <laughs> I manage grants and, and I'm, you know, I get, I'm doing what I got hired to do. And then I organically get drawn to all these efforts, activities, committees, actions, programs, you know, that have to do with this diversification and cultivating, you know, those up and coming, you know, from those in school, high school, college, you know, whatever, because the the resources aren't there, the role models aren't there, you know, the networking isn't necessarily there and built in. It's a very structural um, circumstance as well. So I was very, very committed and I continue to be very committed to that effort. And so once I was at, you know, NIH, I noticed these people in uniform and I'm like, oh, what's this? The Navy's walking around here. And, you know, (laughs) no, it wasn't the Navy. So I came to learn, um, you know, through colleagues that were in uniform as well, that they're that they were part of the U.S. Public Health Service and they were officers in this commission corps. And when I found out more about it, it's you know, they hold your day job is a nine to five at the federal Department of Health and Human Service level where, yes, you have a decision that can impact millions of dollars, taxpayer dollars at that. You have a decision that is like a huge paint brushstroke that affects, you know, not just the community, but like the country. So you have this very 30,000 up in the air, 30,000 feet up in the air kind of position where you have these enormously macro impactful job duties that you have to kind of just become comfortable with. Um, and then when I learned about the Commission Corps and I learned about, you know, many of the, the projects, the programs, these deployments that, that they participate in, you're back on the ground, like with the community, helping yeah. people directly. So that was extraordinarily appealing to me and very meaningful. And so I undertook, you know, that application process and pursued it once I was already kind of settled into NIH. And, you know, it's it's competitive and it's they really do go after the most um you know, accomplished and uh, medical and health professionals that can impact, you know, because because we are relied upon, you know, to come into kind of tight spots and do heavy lifting when it comes to matters of public health. So the application process was nearly two years for me. And I commissioned in 2018 and I remained at NIH uh, for that year. And then I went ahead and migrated over 
to the Commission Corps, you know, headquarters, which is kind of the administrative hub of the service. So because I felt that I really needed to cultivate um, the identity of a Commission Corps officer. I had I had the whole science thing down at that point. Hearing your story, though, I mean, I could not think of a better person on your background of who you were born as, which obviously you had a little little control over, but the impact and the influence you had being born and sort of, you know, pre-DC, splitting your time between Guam and Miami, which geographically also diverse, but also culturally so rich. And in particular, you know, when we talk about Asian American Pacific Islander community, and we probably don't have time to debate why we get lumped into one month or given one checkbox. You know, I learned a lot myself. Uh, we, we did a previous campaign with the wonderful friends who run census. And, you know, even the census has a specific person in separate department that tracks NHPI, you know, uh, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander separately, even though mainstream media, even if they care to go that far, sort of puts all of us, you know, uh, west of California in, into one bucket, right? And, and so I, I think it's wonderful that you have this nuance and this personal story and mission of wanting to do right by the community, particularly in an environment, as you said, you know, monochromatic. And it's not just diversity in the way that we look, it's how we care about people far beyond what we see in spreadsheets or in charts and reports that get reported out. Because at the national level, you're dealing with, you know, 350 plus million people. So of course, using data and science and charts and things like that are easier ways to dissect that information and to make decisions. But let's talk about what we're going through now that's been so top of mind for us, you know, um, go, going through COVID last year, having both communities sort of negatively impacted more so disproportionately from the impacts of COVID, from access issues, from the types of jobs that were typically available or had by the different communities, and then sort of what's you know, on our minds today, which is the vaccine. Tell us sort of high level what the goal is from where you sit of educating and alerting the, the public broadly first and then to our API community on the importance of the vaccine. What, what do you see from where you sit? Well, from what we, you know, from our point of view, the most important part is to make sure that folks have uh, the most up-to-date and scientifically backed information. You know, because this, like anything else, because this is not unique in the sense that something new introduces itself and then, you know, here come all the the concerns and the, the myths and, you know, all the kind of background chatter. And, we, you know, this is this is something that there's a lot of science behind and there's a lot of kind of straightforward information. And it's it's a virus like many other viruses. And, and there's like a, a great foundation of information that we have um, even prior to COVID regarding viruses. So now we're just kind of building on that and making sure that the, the details regarding this particular um, strain and all the way that these variants are, are, you know, popping up is, is addressed and, you know, and acknowledge, you know, going into now our community, acknowledge, you know, the history of distrust that's always existed. And then addressing what the concerns are, addressing, you know, what the hesitations are, what the reluctances are. And, and then backing up again to the broader level is, you know, HHS has really invested in 
making sure that this information is disseminated and that it reaches, you know, the pockets yeah. that it really kind of needs to desperately penetrate. Um, and that's why, you know, we're here chatting today, which is we want to make sure yeah. that, you know, the relatability exists and that every community knows that this is that every community is on HHS's radar. No one has escaped their care or concern at this point. Talk, talk to us about the the immense challenge of that, right? Because we're, we're dealing with a population in America that's 350 million plus. Within that, there are racial groups broken down into by different ethnicities, language challenges, history as it relates, like you said, some of the things that cause certain communities to have distrust, either medically or from, from some of the programmatic things that have occurred in the past. How do you tackle that specifically to the Asian American community where perhaps a little bit different and unique from perhaps the Hispanic and, and Latinx community, we don't even have a single language that most of us speak. There are dozens of different languages, dozens of different unique circumstances, ethnically and community speaking. Like, how do you see that challenge into even bundling one AAPI mission or campaign to make sure that we can get this out? Right. That's an excellent point. Um, and what I can absolutely uh, validate is the HHS effort behind tackling as many of these specific languages as possible and communities, because you're right with the, you know, the Latin community and, and I'm involved in, in COVID efforts there as well. It's, you know, I do one commercial in Spanish and that's going to go everywhere. But with, you know, with our community, there was, the, it, it has to come out in waves, you know? So the, the, yeah. it was definitely like, all right, let's get everything, you know, on a list. And what are, you know, what do we know are those kind of like biggest communities that we really need to, to, to tackle and go after first. And, and there was a swath of, you know, campaigning that, that already has taken place that was created in multiple languages and that's already been pushed out and they were already moving into like another phase of tackling a whole other um, cluster of subgroups and then communicating it in their like, kind of native languages as well. So, I mean, the efforts are there and, and one key issue here that makes it, that actually tremendously contributes to the success is the collaboration. So we're collaborating, not just at the federal level, but obviously with communities at more local state levels. So that's kind of critical because we need to understand what's going on kind of in, you know, more on the ground in local communities and what the, what they're experiencing as the, as the hesitations, the barriers, the obstacles, the reluctances. And then, you know, at our level, trying to put together um, tools, toolkits, um, campaigning that will, you know, target it. But it always happens in conjunction with, you know, more local communities, because that's exactly who we're trying to serve. Some of the challenges, at least from the data that I understand, and, and some of the work that, you know, we've done in working with HHS and census and, and other projects is when it comes to tackling sort of the Asian American community at large, one strategy where we go after the largest percentages of different ethnic communities, right? So if, if you look at the, the top two, Chinese and Indian American, you might think like, well, if we do something, um, well, Indian doesn't have one language, but if you do maybe something in Vietnamese, Chinese, Korean, you're going to hit enough, right? But then, then you start to look at the data and go, well, those are not the most marginalized out of our communities. Those people actually have more access to information, access to healthcare, skew more positively in income and education. And so when we look at some of the sub-Asian groups that are within our community that are more marginalized, right, particularly from the Southeast and particularly from the Pacific Islands, there is sort of a density question of, is that big enough of a group to put as much resources as to, you know, say, 
all Filipino people, right? And so I agree with you and I hear some of the frustrations that I've personally seen too of we're not going to get exhaustive in this effort, right? But we have to try to get as much information out there. Even our podcast, right? You got to be pretty privileged to listen to this, right? You need to have technology access. You need to have time and leisure, right? You need to have the ability to know what podcasts are to have, you know, technological understanding of this. And so we were hoping that if you're hearing this, you may have gotten vaccinated already. I have, right? Everybody in my family has, obviously outside of my children. But we're hoping that you then carry the urgency of the message to the members of your families, to your friends and to other people that you know who still might be a little bit hesitant, right? Because there is sort of, and I totally get it, you know, doing what we do. You know, we're not trying to preach to the choir. We're trying to create evangelists of the people who are listening to then take the message out to people because as it even stands today, and and I don't know when people are going to be listening to this exactly, but we're sitting here smack in the middle of July. And we are, let's see here, the numbers that you provided were not even half, right? So we're a little bit over a third as an Asian American community. And so we have a long way to go. So what is your message to those of us who can be megaphones and amplifiers so that we can get it out to some of the groups who obviously are going to be harder to reach than an Asian American podcast? Right. And this is, um, so a couple things. So, you know, you're, you keep referring to the data. This is, this is the thorn in my side in science, which is, you know, you said it. they lump everybody from the West coast on into one group. So this is a major point of contention in the world of science and in the space that I'm at with disparities, which is you, this needs to be disaggregated. So we could understand what's going on in the individual groups, or at least what are the bigger impacts, right? Like I, like you said, I understand it can't necessarily be everything, right? But, but we need to take steps in that direction. And I do know, and I could, and I could validate as well that the director of the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities has already made this argument. Um, but again, to your point, you know, it's the Census Bureau that that kind of makes these determinations. So the, the evidence and the argument and, you know, needs to continue to kind of make its way towards them so that we can see some progress in this area. So having said that, that we already know that we have an issue with disentangling what's going on with who within our subgroups, we just continue to have to get the message out. So I spoke to somebody when in preparation for this podcast, um, when I was out on the West Coast last week, um, I had a, a conversation with a professor out in the universities there that deals with, I think, specifically American Samoans that are out on the West Coast. So it was just questions like that, like, what are you hearing? What are you experiencing? What are they saying? What's going on about the vaccine? And it's, you know, it's the, oh, let me just, I just want to wait and see what happens and then I'll get it. So they're waiting for everybody to either live or drop dead to like get this vaccine. But then, you know, sometimes in, in many circumstances, the sad reality is that it's two minutes too late. So yes. that's what this vaccine, that's what all of these campaign efforts, that's what trying to penetrate our community is trying to avoid, which is you don't know how your body is going to react if you come across the virus and the protections are drastically, monumentally better for everybody to outlive this with the vaccine. And in our specific community, you know, COVID has had a very, very detrimental impact in, in that in our, you know, our numbers are small, comparable to like, you know, whites and, and everybody else, but we have more people hospitalized and we have more people who actually pass away. So being a megaphone is to continue to get the message out as far and wide as possible, because as you mentioned, People talk to each other. So we're counting on the innate, the kind of the organic 
a way that our community communicates, which is through the community, family and friends. So when the megaphones, you know, kind of like when the message comes out through all these outlets, it's the rippling out through those smaller avenues and those smaller networks that we can finally penetrate those, those smaller pockets because our people talk. Like we, you know, we, uh, all the minority communities are like living, breathing grapevines in that regard. So <laughs> it's imperative that we just, that, that the message is spread as far and wide as possible so that the ripple out effect can be that much more impactful. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges, I think you, you talk about the grapevine, sort of the um, epicenter of misinformation, however, is in these chats and online forums that it, it's really hard to fact, fact check sometimes, right? You know, I, I think many of us immigrant kids can remember a point where our parents, uh, I'll pick up my mom, she goes, Oh, did you know XYZ? And I'm like, where the hell did you hear that? And you, you can't trace it back to a reputable source, right? It was either something in the Korean newspaper or somebody at church said, and you're like, wait a minute, that's so wrong. You know, I, I, I remember not just from my own family, but other people when when COVID first came out, there were a lot of hokey stuff, right? Like, gargle hot water, and it will, you know, kill the virus in your throat, like all these silly things that may seem harmless, but actually is potentially harmful, especially when you're not taking action for something scientifically proven to be uh, preventative and, and can help not just you, but other people because you slow down the trans transmission of the virus, particularly as a vaccine. So um, one thing that I will personally add on to what Dr. Rosario said to our friends listening is call out that stuff when you see it, whether it is, you know, it's, it's not as innocent. And I, I will share with you, you know, the last 18 months for me has been an intensely introspective time deciding who I want in my life, because there's a line to be drawn of people who do not take my life seriously, who do not care to take easy, simple precautions to keep my father's life. And he has, you know, uh, health issues, right? Or to be disrespectful to people like you and to people in my family who work within the healthcare system who are actually putting their lives at risk and putting everything else above so that we can keep everybody alive. And so, you know, that part, I think, you know, the, the data is clear and I, I hear you too, this whole wait and see. But you know what's happening in LA where I am? It's gotten so bad from these wait and see people that we've had a thousand cases a day all week and masks are going to be mandated again indoors starting tomorrow. But it's the same crowd. Like it's, it's just, you know, the cycle of, I don't get it. You know, the people who want to be free are the ones that are actually keeping us from being free. And it's over and over again. And so vaccines are there. They are free. They are available. Um, there are so many places you can go to vaccines.gov and learn all about it from a science perspective. Um, you can call your county, state, city um, entities that offer the vaccine. Just about every retail pharmacy chain in the country is offering vaccines for free. Many of them walk in. And so if you haven't and you're listening to us, I, I, I beg you to please go get it. Um, I have had friends this week that I've learned about that caught COVID even after they were vaccinated. And, and thankfully, they were vaccinated. So their impact hopefully is less. But you hear of stories of people passing away, even being vaccinated. So it is still scary. And I, and I know summer's here and people want to go out and do socialization stuff. But there's a reason why we're spending time talking to the, you know to you about this, even though COVID quote unquote has passed for for so many. As we wrap here, uh, Dr. Rosario, what is there perhaps two things about the vaccine that you want everybody to remember? Other one is get it, 
But what are the two other two other vaccine tidbits or uh, fun facts that you really want our community to remember? Fun facts. Okay, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, <laughs> um, that even though we have the new variant, that's kind of um, you know people feel very threatened by the Delta one. The FDA authorized vaccines um, are still they're still holding up. They're still holding yeah. up against that variant. So. One thing that I'm constantly hearing is, oh, no, the vaccines, they don't protect. Well, yeah, there is definitely some measure of protection, if not a good measure of protection against the new variant. Um, So definitely, I I hope that that new strain does not deter people from pursuing any of the three FDA authorized vaccines at this point. Um, And then the second thing I do want to say is for those getting the vaccine, please follow through with that second shot if you're going to get the Pfizer or the Moderna, because what you don't want to do Mm. is cut your body short, right. From getting the resistance that it's really, it's going to try to pursue to keep you inoculated and protected without the, you know, the full correct dose, the, the protections are going to be compromised. So, cause, cause there's, there's been a few that I've come across. They're like, Oh, I got one. I had COVID. I had antibodies. So I got, I got the first one. I'm fine. And I'm like, well, it kind of doesn't really work that way, but, you know, and then we're all, you know, and, and just to, just to echo your thought, it's, you know, I think most of us have been put into kind of complicated, uncomfortable, unfortunate, disappointing situations with people close to you that, you know, you can't, you can't impose it, right? All you can do is inform. And so I'm um, just, we're here today, just hoping to inform and just yeah. reiterate that it's safe. You know what? Any any side effects that you get from it is going to be so much less severe than anything that can happen if you actually, you know, contract the virus without any protections in your system. And you know, you're doing it to protect yourself. You're doing it to protect those that you love. You're doing it to so that we can we can get back to the life that we all miss and love very much. You know, it's a personal responsibility. It's a responsibility to those that we love. Um, it's a responsibility to just kind of make sure that we have a good tomorrow shared yeah. collectively. Awesome. And we, we talked about it a little bit, and it's been a while since we mentioned it. But when the census comes around again in nine years, please fill it out. Because all this is related. How, how we get funded, how we get attention, how even, you know, it all comes down to our, our civic duty of voting and filling out the census that starts with drawing up congressional districts of resources of funding. And so I know we've talked a lot about in our community about representation and not being heard and being frustrated. And this is our time. But you can't do that without participating in the process that actually, just like Dr. Rosario figured out, she saw crystal clear, where does the money trail end or start to get funding to make critical impact in our community? And it is at the federal government level. Whether, whether you love it or not, whether you agree or disagree with how it is or how it started, we have to play uh, within the rules that are given to us to create the impact that we want to. And then, and if and only then, when we have influence and do whatever to change the system, but for now, we have to play in that. So so I, I know you're not going to remember this in nine years, folks, but um, if and when we do the census thing again, please fill it out um, so that our grandkids don't have to have this conversation in, in 30 years. Absolutely. Um, and that's going to contribute to eliminating these inequities, like having absolutely. those numbers count, you know, so yeah. we definitely want to do that. And just um, before you close off, I just do want to share a couple bits of information for our, your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So, you know, HHS has worked really hard to eliminate these inequities and these barriers. So we want to go ahead and share that um, folks can go to vaccines.gov and get information about vaccines there. 
They could also text their zip code to four three eight eight two nine. That's another resource that they could um, utilize. And they could always call 1-800-232-0233. And these are all ways that um, they can get linked up and get information and get themselves some appointments for themselves or for their loved ones to receive the vaccine. And we know you're not good at remembering numbers listening to a podcast. So those are going to be in the show notes and on our Instagram and wherever you are learning about this show. We, we end the show here, Dr. Rosario, um, to wrap everything up in the form of a letter. You know, the name of the show is The Asian Americans, and it is really a letter of love and of support and of inspiration to the people that are listening. Not just about the vaccines, obviously, that is a very important uh, reason why we're talking. But in, in hindsight of all the lessons that you've learned and the experiences that you've had, share with us and the audience something that you want to share. Maybe it's a younger version of you. Maybe it's somebody who uh, is of tomorrow descent looking up at you as somebody to achieve and, and to dream after. And so I'll, I'll start the letter. And um, if you could help me finish out uh, the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, don't be afraid to follow your heart and break the mold. And don't be afraid to stand collectively because there's so much more similar that we share than different. And that goes for our community and our neighbor minority communities. Don't be afraid. There's a lot of people who are, who have uh, paved the way, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, for us to do what we do. And I think sometimes we forget uh, the amount of impact that we can have, especially when you do something like you are in a position of extreme visibility and extreme influence, something that you may not even think will impact somebody does and, and has and continue to. So I echo your sentiments. I, I am so grateful to you for making time amidst your busy, busy schedule and what continues to be a very challenging time for us as a country and particularly as a community. Again, to Mariana and to Bryce, and I forgot him earlier, Henry, I'm sorry, to our friend Henry, who, who uh, was, was so critical in, in coordinating and making sure that we could make this happen. Thank you for continuing the work of amplifying our uh, community and to make sure that we're getting this message out. So all the ways that you can get in touch with the team and learn more about the vaccines uh, will be in the show notes. Dr. Rosario, thank you so much primarily for what you do and what you stand for and uh, from a personal standpoint for making time for us to share this conversation today. Thank you so much for having us, Gary. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Again, go to vaccines.gov. Very simple, easy. Very simple and easy website to remember, vaccines.gov. Learn more about uh, vaccine information, where you can get it. Now, many counties and many uh, municipalities are offering vaccine to your home. And so uh, please, please, please get vaccinated. Uh, the numbers that we are seeing, and we are recording, I am recording this uh, just a couple of days before, um, over the weekend on July 25th, and uh, the numbers that we're seeing are extremely concerning. So please, please, please get vaccinated. Uh, let Dr. Rosario's story and her research and her work uh, be an inspiration to you. And again, please uh, please share this out with anybody in your life that you think might could could benefit from uh, hearing this story. Um, and as we uh, get through episode 123 here, uh, episode 123, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in. Whether this is your first episode or whether this is uh, your 123rd and you've been with me since uh, the beginning last March, genuine, genuine thanks for letting me into your lives, uh, letting me share our collective Asian American stories. So much so now, as we watch the Olympics happening in Tokyo, uh, celebrating Asian American athletes 
who are competing, not just for the United States, but for some of us back in our uh, motherland or our home countries. And so please stay safe. Please stay healthy. Uh, please reach out to me if you want to chat. At the Ears and Americans on Instagram is where I can be found or hello at jerrywan.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please stay healthy, safe, and happy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I'll see you next time on The Ears and Americans.